We're going to be picking back up. Well, I mean, we not stopped it, even though I was gone. We continued in the series Alpha and Omega, God from beginning to end. And, and Pastor Bob and Pastor Dave did a, did a great job of, of moving us from the covenant with Noah. So we've, we've, we've studied the covenant with Abraham. We started with God creates. We've moved to God covenants. And we started with the covenant with, with uh, creation, uh, with Adam. We saw that reaffirmed with Noah. And then Bob and Dave both carried us forward um, from Noah and, and really landed us at the, at, the, at the next step, the next covenant that we see God make in the scripture is God's covenant with Abraham. So we're going to be, there's a lot of verses we're going to cover today. Uh, I think on the screen behind me, if it says it yet, yeah, yeah, Genesis chapter 12 through 15. So we're going to hit all three chapters. We're here till we're done, right? So um, no, we won't read every verse, but there's some pertinent verses in each one. So let me encourage you, open the Word, get the Bible in front of you so that you can read along, follow along, even as I, as I just make some notes as we pass through these passages uh, to, to just get us a frame of reference. And the whole time, we're going to be building towards the main point that really will then be further broken out next week. So I've got a lot of work to do to put some threads on the table, some strings on the table, tie them up in a bow at the end, and then we're going to pick up with the rest of it next week. Uh, so I'm just warning you ahead of time, but let me, let me, what, what, what normally, if you're visiting, normally I would read, then pray, but because of the way we're going to do it, let me just go ahead and pray, ask for God's blessing on this time, his grace to be with us, uh, and, and his word to do its work in us. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And though there's much I will say and words that I will seek to explain points that I'll make, um, I long for your voice to be heard, that your people find your spirit at work through your word in them, and that as a result, we're stronger, more faithful, uh, more at peace, better able to walk with you in this relationship that you've given us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, Genesis chapter 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. We'll read through verse 4. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. We, we live in a world that's filled with uncertainty. That's it's constantly shifting, constantly moving, constantly uh, facing off with, I mean, uncertainty, broken promises, dashed dreams, unmet expectations. In a world that's, that's uh, filled with people with anxious hearts, despondent minds, that's just self-loathing and, and depressed spirits. We, li- we live in a world that's longing for and running after and seeking solutions. It recognizes all the wrongs, and in fact, anywhere you turn, any, any media you pick up and begin to listen to, you'll hear everyone pointing out, their, at least from their perspective, this is the problem, this is, this is what's wrong. If we just fix this thing, things would be okay. The world would be right. Seeking to, to run after these solutions, clinging to these solutions. 
And if we can learn anything from history, it's that all of these solutions but one has left people empty, has left people with unmet expectations, has left people looking and grasping for another solution over and over and over and over again. Even in the church, I, I wish I could say it's not true. I wish I could say that this wasn't true of God's people. I've recognized that I've succumbed to it in my life, uh, especially over the last three years. I found myself rocked in ways that challenged in ways that I've struggled and I, I sought solutions other than the one offered by the Lord. I listen to people who are constantly telling me if the church would just do this. Here's, the, here's what we need to do. We argue over things, the social concerns, political issues, gender roles and identity, sexuality, its role in our lives, and, and the list goes on. And, and it's not to say that the Bible doesn't have plenty to say about every one of these things. Not to say that there's not a position we should hold or can hold or is right to hold on these things. We can only accomplish X, Y, or Z. This great danger that the church is facing will be saved. When did that become our role? When did that become our responsibility? But this is the exact kind of pragmatic, self-powered, self-motivated world that existed when God showed up to Abraham. We didn't read these verses, but, but they're there, and I want to point you to them now. And I want you to pay attention to just how starkly different it is in Genesis chapter 11. At the very beginning, of the story of the Tower of Babel, in Genesis 11.3. And they said to one another... Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. Radically different. Then God showing up into Abraham's life and saying, I will do this. They're speaking, let us. They're self-motivated, they're self-protecting, they're self-aggrandizing, they're self-exalting. Let us do this thing. <laughs> and a chapter later, almost as if it's a rebuke beyond the judgment that God had to look down on their little tower and spread them on his own out from that tower. Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to work. I, I think the point is, is, is clear. I, I, th I think that the lesson that we can draw from this is self-evident. If it's something that we can do that doesn't require God, it's never going to stand. Never going to stand. And we'll be met with unmet expectations, dashed dreams, 
unfulfilled promises, and we will find ourselves no better than we were before, but that's what makes this thing that God's about to do with Abraham so beautiful. He's going to do something. And actually, Abram, Abraham is going to be his name. Abraham is going to be the beneficiary of it. He's going to be the recipient of it. He's going to be enjoying it. And there will be a responsibility for him to walk in it, but it's all going to be done and accomplished by God. In fact, as, as, this, as this passage opens, there's, there's seven I will statements that, that, that we can find through uh, verse 9. From, from Genesis chapter one, 12, verse 1 through 9, there's seven statements of which God repeatedly says, this is what I'm going to do. And God's interacting with Abraham and calling him to something that's so much more than what people could have done or did do on their own. So as we walk through these, we're really going to walk through these first four verses just real quickly. We don't have a ton of time to spend here, but we're going to walk through them quickly. I want you to see three things. God's command to Abraham, God's uh, accomplishments for Abraham, and God's accomplishments through Abraham. Now first, let's talk about the God's command to Abraham. So I'm already telling you that, that God's going to do something for him. But before he even begins to tell him what he's going to do, what does he, what, what, what does he do? The Lord said to Abraham, Go. From your country and your kindred and your father's house. So this, this distancing himself from everything that he knows and feels comfortable with. Your country, your kindred, the people groups, and your father's house. That immediate family relationship. Separate yourself from everything you know, from everything you've ever experienced. And go out from that and go to this place that I will show you. Now I don't know about you, but I like to know where I'm going before I go. I mean, there's not many places. In fact, yesterday I was picking up uh, uh, one of the, Olivia for John and Cher. I was picking her up, and I didn't even go to their house. I've been there before. I didn't even go to their house without opening Google Maps just to make sure that I got there to the right place. We, we like that. We enjoy it. We appreciate that. But God says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a place, and I want you to go with me. In fact, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Go. Get up and go. Leave all of this stuff and Go. The next command, a little less, little less obvious, but we see it in verse 3. He's, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you... All, I'm sorry, it's at the end of verse 2. Jumping ahead. He says in verse 2, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Now, that passive language that, that, that says you will be, that passive verb is actually in the Hebrew an imperative, which is a command. So basically, the command is that because I've been a blessing to you, because I've made your name great, because I've made you a great nation, because I'm doing these things, you are to be a blessing. And from those commands, the very next verse unfolds. So God says, go. In fact, how can you enjoy any of the work that I'm going to do if you don't go? And because you've enjoyed the work that I've done for you, I'm going to expect of you, require of you, that you be a blessing to others. So then we see these commands. So, so from those commands, we can, we can enter into this discussion. We're talking about covenants, and so I'm, I'm seeking to try to provide some insight into, into doctrinal theological language as we do it. And so one of the things that we could talk about in this covenant is conditional 
versus unconditional. A lot of people will suggest that this is an unconditional covenant, and that's absolutely true. God is not going to Abraham and say, you must do this thing in order for me to do this thing. He's saying, this is what I'm going to do. But don't miss the fact that there is expectation. There is a command even now for Abraham to follow. If Abraham is going to see the land, what must he do? Get up and go. There's a way in which, just, just to, to, to bring this together, just for a, a, a more, maybe a direct application illustration, for a Christian to enjoy the peace and grace of God, what must we do? Walk with him. Right? I mean, we could be Christians and, and be trapped in sin and be deceived and life be filled with trouble and trial and, and, and experience no peace and joy, or we can be Christian walking with him, praying to him, as Paul says, placing our coming to him in thanksgiving, all of our supplications and prayers placed before him, experiencing the peace that passes understanding. An internal peace, an internal uh, contentment, an internal sense of everything's okay because God has me, even though the world around me might be falling apart. There's a way in which there is still an expectation. So though God is not put, placing any conditions on Abraham, God is saying, you can't just do whatever you want. You've got to walk with me. You've got to get up and go. And if you want to enjoy the blessing most fully, you must also be a blessing. This is the idea. This is what's happening. So God gives these commands to Abraham and is expecting Abraham to walk in them. Then we see God's accomplishments. And these are the seven I will statements. So first, accomplishments for Abraham. They are governed by that first command to go. Go to the land I'm going to show you. I will make a great, I will make you a great nation. Immediately, there's a promise for descendants and a promise for those people, and a, a, a promise for a place for those people to live. Now, it's implied. It's not, it's not expressly stated. It's going to become clearer as God continues to walk with Abraham. But he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you plenty of children and plenty of offspring, and I'm going to give you a place for those children to live. I will bless you, Abraham. I am going to bestow on you all the abundance that, that you can enjoy in a world that's filled with and marked with scarcity. You are going to know my blessing in a special and an intentional way. I will make your name great. God had big plans for Abraham. And his line. His plans were so big, we still talk about Abraham today. <laughs> still a significant figure today. Thousands of years later, we still talk about him today. But we're not the only ones. Yeah, I just came back from Senegal. You know where they trace their lineage back to? Abraham. Through Ishmael. Abraham's name is great. Abraham is a, is, is a central figure in the redemptive plan of God. Abraham's name is made much greater than he could have ever made his name on his own. Don't you think? So this is what God's going to do. God's accomplishments for Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. Well, then God is also going to do a work through Abraham. This governed by that second command that's a little less obvious to be a blessing because I've blessed you. He says, I'm going to bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. 
First, these two things are opposites, right? They're two sides of the same coin. God's going to protect Abraham. He's going to ensure that those who come against him are only allowed to do what God intends and sees necessary to do, but he will always protect Abraham, and those who come against him will, well, eventually and ultimately they'll be judged. But we can see this play out specifically in the very next passage. If you, if you follow, they, they end up, there's a drought, and they go into Egypt, and he tells them that, that, that Sarah, his wife, is his sister, and, and, and they take his wife from him. It's a crazy story. It seems like this is nuts. This, is this a thing that people used to do? They just take a wife and without any care for the people she's with? We just take her and into our... It's so strange to me. But that's what happened And anyway, God brings a curse on Pharaoh, and ultimately, because of the curse that's brought against him, they send Abraham back out of Egypt. So God's going to curse, but he's also going to bless. If there is going to be a blessing, if there's going to be an enjoyment of this specific and special blessing, it's going to be because of what God did through Abraham. Now, there is a way in which God has blessed. The the Noahic covenant is a universal covenant, and God has blessed and said, be fruitful and multiply. He's given us food. He's given us the world. He says, as long as the earth endures, I'm going to preserve life on it. There is a general blessing, a common grace that all people enjoy, but this is a blessing that God is going to bring specific and special blessing that's available only through Abraham. And then the third thing he says is, in you, all peoples will be blessed. If someone's going to enjoy God's blessings at its fullest, they are going to enjoy it through the work that God does with Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and in you all peoples will be blessed. So what does Abraham do? He gets up and goes. He gets up and leaves. I'm going to go with him. I'm going to get up and do the thing. I'm going to walk in obedience. I'm going to listen to the command, and I'm going to do this thing that God has called me to do. I don't know if he sits and wonders, yeah, man, this is the first time I've met this God. I'm surrounded by pagan people who worship all kinds of gods, and this God shows up in my life and says, get up and go and leave all this behind. And I don't know if he debates it. I don't know if he's considering it. I don't know if God's done some special work in him that's made him ready to move at a, a moment's notice. But what we do know is that he gets up and goes, and he takes Lot with him. At 75 years old, Abraham stands up and starts over. Leaves everything that he knew behind. Now, Moses has yet to tell us that, that this is an act of faith. But the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 11.8, just so that you hear it. I don't think this verse is on the screen. Let me just read it to you. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was, yet, was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So before he ever left, faith is operating, moving encouraging, motivating this activity. As he goes, God meets with him again. And so if you follow the passage down through verse 5 through um, the next several verses, you, uh, down through verse 9, you're going to see that Abraham gets up and begins to walk across the land of, of Canaan. And, and there's different places he's stopping and looking, or different places mentioned along the way. But we come to verse 7, or I'm sorry, yeah, verse 7, and we see that God visits him again. As he's going, he stops, God visits him and comes to him, and now the promises that he's made are going to become a bit more explicit. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, 
To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So here, he he already knows I'm going to make you a great nation. I'll make your name great. I'm going to bless you. He already understands. He already knows this. But now the, the promise is explicit. A promise for offspring and a promise for land. This land, the one that you're standing on, this is the land I'm going to give you. And your offspring are going to be the ones that inhabit it. So it's an explicit promise at this point. And time continues to pass. It continues to go on. Things aren't all easy. So it's not that God's blessing totally removes all the hardship because there's a famine in the land. If you follow the story along, Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarah end up in Egypt uh, because the famine's in the land. Now, that could be a, a doubting faith. It could be a weak faith. It, it could be they just didn't have another option. They were hungry and they needed something to eat and they went someplace to get it. It's hard to know because we weren't there. But they leave this land that God has said, I'm, gonna promise, uh, I'm, I'm promising to give you. They go in, they go to, and then they get removed and they get sent back out. And so far as we know, when they're sent back out of Egypt, the, the famine's still going. But time continues to pass. Abraham goes up from Egypt, he and his wife, it says in verse 1 of chapter 13, a lot with him, and they went into the Negev. To the Negev. Jump down to verse 14 through 17, and again, God reiterates the promise. This time a bit more clear. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. So let me just, in case you're not familiar, familiar with the story. So God blesses Abram, Abram and Lot. Both of them have so much livestock, so much going on in their households that the land won't support them. And so they know they've got to separate. So they stand and they say, hey, Abram says to Lot, what do you, what, you take the place that you want. And, and Lot takes the place that's green and, and lush. And he says, that's where I'm going to go. And, and Abram has everything left. And then... Verse 14 through 17, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. So this even counts the land that Lot has just chosen, right? So if, if you look at the directional, if you look at the compass, look around you, everywhere your eye can turn, northward, southward, eastward, westward, all of that land. For all the the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. You ever counted the dust of the earth? I'm betting we're not even wanting to count the dust in our house, right? Like you think about just the amount of dust in your house. The dust of the earth. It's a big number. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So again, an even clearer promise. Hey, there's going to be offspring, and there's going to be an awful lot of your offspring, and they're going to have this land. Look, turn around and look. Spend some time gazing northward, southward, eastward, westward. It's all yours. It's all theirs. We don't know exactly how long passes, less than 10 years, because that's the next count of time we get in chapter 14, or I'm sorry, in chapter 16, but the, it's likely coming close to 10 years, but God has made these promises. I would summarize those promises from the accomplishments that he's going to work on behalf of Abraham or to Abraham and the accomplishments that he's going to work through Abraham, I would summarize his promises this way, relationship. 
God is going to be his God. I think that becomes very clear as he interacts with him. God is going to be his God, and, and Abraham is going to be his man. And his offspring are going to be God's people. There is an ongoing expectation of relationship at this point. That's why God didn't say, hey, go away from me to that land I'm telling you about. He said, go, I'm going to show you. There's a way in which God's intending this to be a walk together, a, a, a life together, a relationship together. Blessing. God's promise to Abraham, clear blessing. Abundance, both spiritual and physical. Some of that we're already beginning to see as, as Abraham has had so much livestock and, and even Lot has got so much livestock that they couldn't stay on the same land together. There's this massive amount of physical blessing, but there's going to be spiritual blessing. God was going to provide for Abraham in every way. He's going to bless him. Offspring, children, lots of them, and land, a place for these children to live. God isn't working fast. He's definitely not working fast in the way we consider things to happen fast, right? Like we can have a dinner in 30 minutes. That, that he's, he's, not nearly, he's not working nearly that fast, but he's not even working fast as Abraham would consider working fast. And somewhere before 10 years goes by, but, but probably getting close to 10 years, God comes and reveals himself and meets with Abraham again. And then we see that in Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And you just think about this. So, so, so let's just stop and think about this. So, so Abram is a wealthy man. He's already gone to war against nations, right? He's already delivered, saved Lot out of a troublesome situation where, where Lot was being held captive. He has he is got so much stuff that he and his nephew Lot can't live on the same land. They've got to divide. So, so he's like, look at all that I've got. I'm rewarded, but, but I'm missing something. I'm missing this promise. You said I was going to have children. And Lot, the closest thing to a child, this nephew, this one that was of his father's line, is no longer in his household. What about this child? I'm living in the land. I'm enjoying the abundance of the land. But what about this child? God knows what he's planning to do, meets Abraham in this place. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. Now we've already been told you, we didn't read the verse, but in Genesis chapter 11, at the very end of chapter 11, we're told that God is, that the, the sons of Terah are, uh, let, me, let me just flip over and look at it because I'm going to forget their names or I'll butcher them and that might just be worse. But there's Terah is Abraham's father and then there's, there's um, Abram, Nahor, and Haran Haran fathered Lot. Haran dies, and so Lot's the nephew that comes with Abram. But we're told at the very end that Sarah 
Abram's wife is barren. We already know she can't have children. She hasn't had children. And here is Abram hearing from God, you're going to have a child. Now, I don't know if Abram already knows. I, I can have kids, and she can't. I don't know if that's, he's already aware of that. They just don't have kids. Been married a long time. Likely neither of them are virgins. Like Likely they've been together as husband and wife. And there's no children. God, what are you going to do? All I've got is now this servant in my household. And God says, no, Abram. You're going to have your very own child. Look toward the heaven. And he brought him outside. I'm sorry, pick, pick, pick it back up. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son. So not just any child, not just a daughter, but a son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said, so shall your offspring be. And this powerful verse, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believes God. He's counted as righteous. He's counted as one acceptable, able to stand in God's presence, able to be in, in, in step with God simply because he believed. We know that his faith was, was moving him and motivating him. The author of Hebrews tells us that, that when he gets up and goes out of, out of Haran, we know that it's faith that's moving him away from his, his, uh, his, his people, his, his family. We, we know that it's his faith moving him to do that. But here... We see what God is doing. God is not just bringing a people. God is doing a work in which he is going to make people righteous. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth, Chaldeans, to, to give you this land. I'm the Lord. I'm God. I'm the one who brought you out of that pagan place. A pagan among pagans. I'm the one who did this. And he's the one that's counting him as righteous. And he's the one that's promising him this son. I am the one who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And not just you, but your offspring. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to me, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half and laid each over against the other. So here's, picture this, here it is, is, is cut lengthways, the, uh, the, the ram and the, the uh, let me get the animals right, bring me a heifer three years old, a cow cut down the middle, laid over long ways, right? So head to tail, laid over long ways. Bring me a female goat three years old, so the goat laid over, cut in half, and laid over long ways. A ram three years old, cut in half, and laid over, head to tail. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds' prey came down on the, car on the carcasses, Abraham drove them, Abram drove them away. I just want you to picture the scene for just a minute. Have you ever been around a dead animal as it sits in the sun? The smell that actually draws birds to feast on that flesh? That's not a pleasant smell. Imagine the blood. I mean, this, these animals, it doesn't appear to be that they were bled out somewhere and hung on a tree to let the blood roll. They were cut in half and laid over side. It's a messy, dirty 
filthy, bloody. Death right at the center. Right? So much so that that these birds of prey smell this death and they come to feed. And Abraham drives them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain. Here's how you're going to know, Abram. Here's how you can know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. The one who curses you, I will curse. Remember that. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I've got a work that I'm going to complete here and then bring them back. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Now remember, Abram's asleep. He is maybe hearing God's voice in a dream, but he is not able to do anything. It's dark. And behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the land of Kenizzites, the land of Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Gigashites, and the Jebusites. This is the land you're going to inhabit. And the way you can know, Abram, is because I'm binding myself in covenant to you. If I don't give you this land and give your offspring this land, the message is what's been done to these animals should be done to me. God's saying, if this is not accomplished, then I will be cursed. This is huge. The God of the heavens, the God who called him out of Ur of Chaldees, the God who flooded the earth and made covenant with Noah, the God who said, let there be light and light shone. That God, in the, in, in the, in the image of, of smoking pot and burning torch, smoke and fire, the same God that showed himself in smoke and fire as he led the Israelites through the desert, that God is saying, I'm promising upon myself to ensure that you and your people have this land. God has bound himself in covenant with Abraham that he will fulfill all that he has promised to accomplish for Abraham and through Abraham and takes the curse upon himself if he doesn't. That's still all in promise form. God hasn't actually accomplished it yet, but he is saying based on this, you can be certain. Based on my covenant, my covenant agreement that I've entered into with you today, Abram. So that's the point. Now, before we finish, let me just answer a question, because we're going to pick that point back up next week as we continue to walk through the covenant. I hope you're hungry for that. But why does this matter to you and me? Why, why bother? Why well, look at this story, why well, consider this story as a land that I'm not getting, it's a, right, it's, it, it, does this have anything to do with us thousands of years later? 
Why does this matter to you and me? Well, first, I'd point you to Abraham's offspring. It's easy to, to, oh, well, I know Abraham's offspring. I mean, you just read a little further, you're going to find out there's Isaac and Jacob, and I know the nation of Israel is going to come out of it. God's going to fulfill his, oh, man, he made Abraham a nation. Look at that. That's easy. But there's more. We read about it in the New Testament. Paul, in the book of Galatians, correcting the the false gospels that have been preached, is, is confronting the Galatians, and he gives us insight into what God was doing with Abraham. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Truer than Isaac is the offspring of promise, truer than Israel is the nation of promise, is Jesus Christ the offspring. Oh, well, that means something. Yeah. And he actually goes on to make that point and show us what it actually means. If you follow that line of thinking down to verse 26 through 29, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring's heirs according to the promise. Apart from the work that God is going to do through Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ, not even Israel will stand eternally. Now, if you're dispensational, I know I've just offended you, and I'm sorry, but I think it's clear. I think if you follow Hebrews through, the book of Hebrews shows us the same thing. Not even Israel, the nation, is who God is making promises to. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, Jesus. There is a near fulfillment. There is a near expression. There is a way in which we begin to see them unfold. But the truest and the fullest fulfillment of those things are going to come through Jesus Christ. And if Israel is going to enjoy the blessings of God and enjoy the inheritance that God has promised to Abraham, they are going to have to enjoy them just like you and I as Gentiles in Jesus Christ. Period. There is no other way, never has been, never will be. This is the one solution that's always been offered. God's plan for redemption has always been through Jesus Christ. If we want to count ourselves an offspring of Abraham, God will not count it by our lineage, but by our faith in Christ Jesus. We are Israel in Christ because Christ is the true Israel. Israel, the nation, is a nation, but it has no eternal claim on any land or any promise unless they come to their father, Abraham, and express his faith, express their faith in the one who was promised through him, Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are all Abraham's offspring. 
as we place our faith in him, as we trust in him. So these offspring, this offspring, these promises are absolutely significant for us today. Where is your peace at? Where is your joy at? Where is your hope at? The solutions, I mean, I mean, come on, let's go to a Christian bookstore. We can find all kinds of answers for hope, self-promotional hope, self-help books in Christian bookstores. It blows my mind that they even exist, but they're there. Your best life now. The solutions for the church. We're part of a network. We're part of the Acts 29 network. And I appreciate the position. I appreciate the perspective that, that is complementarian in its, in its way of being. Male headship in the church and in the home. But we can take that to a degree that, let me say this carefully. The whole fault becomes the man's failure. He didn't lead in his home. He didn't do the right thing. He was a coward. He wasn't strong. And the solution becomes be a man. So often those arguments I hear are 1950s, Ward Cleaver, going to work, making sure you're Wife is at home, dressed in pearls, dressed, you know, wearing that skirt, taking out the trash. I'm all for, I'm all for male headship. Please don't hear me saying something different. But if you're a man that's trying to be a man apart from being conformed to the image of Christ, you are being the wrong man. Women, male headship is the right expression of the home. I heard a woman tell me once that, hey, I just don't like the word submission. So can you not use that verse from Ephesians in our wedding? If you don't like the word submission, how, how do you submit to the Lord? I know it's abused. I know that there's all kinds of ways that it's been abused and taken advantage of and, and, and women have been hurt and oppressed and beaten and abused. I, I get that. But look at this. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Those lines have been destroyed. They've been obliterated. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. It's not that these things don't exist, that there's no idea of them that exist, but the, but the union that's brought, the, it's all bound up in, it's all connected, it's all united in Jesus Christ. He's the solution. He and He alone is the solution. God's accomplishments... So where's your hope? Where's your joy? Where's your peace? Where's your contentment? Where's your satisfaction? Listen, it's good to study these covenants and see that God has been working from all time and will work until time is finished. It's good to see that and understand it and experience it. But do we recognize that those things then matter now? In a book... Um, a, a man named Ray Vanderlaan, he's part of Focus on the Family. He, he started the ministry called That the World May Know Ministries in a book that was published by Focus on the Family. He writes this, when, when he walked in the dust of the desert through the blood of the animals Abraham had slaughtered, God was making a promise to all the descendants of Abraham, to everyone in the household of faith. When God splashed through the blood, he did it for us. When God made covenant with his people, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. 
If this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my, for my unfaithfulness or for yours, I will pay the price, said God. If you or your descendants for whom you are making this covenant fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus. Because God has a command. He has an expectation of an obedient and faithful covenant partner. And he says, hey, if you fail, I'm going to take the pain. I'm going to take the payment. I'm I'm going to ensure this happens. Whose accomplishments are bringing you peace and joy and satisfaction and contentment? Whose I wills are you listening to? Are you joining with the world and joining with, with pragmatic Christians saying, let us, let us, let us? Are you trusting in the, in, in the God who has established his people, who, who will preserve his people, and who will ensure his people are glorified at the end? Matthew 16, 16 through 18, Jesus is asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed to you, uh, to revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock... Who I will build my church. Who's going to build it? Who's going to save it? Who's going to keep it? How much pragmatism have we bought into as a people, as a God, uh, as a people of God? If we just do this thing, we'll save the church. Whose accomplishments are giving us peace, and whose control are we trying to live in? Whose power are we trying to rest on? I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know what that means? The church will endure forever. Not because you did it, not because I did it, because he is doing it. So, so, so we have, we have our, our lives as his, as, as, as Abraham's offspring because we are in Christ. We have his accomplishments that start all the way back at that moment that he walks through that blood and says, hey, I'm, I'm doing this. It's my work that will stand. It's my work that will last all the way to the point where Jesus comes and says, I'm building this church to the point that Jesus hangs on that cross and dies in our place and for our sins. What's getting you into eternity? Not you. But you can believe in the one who does. Our faith. Life comes to us through this faith. It's a by grace through faith, Paul wrote in Ephesians. It's not your own doing so that no one can boast. It's a gift. It comes to us through this faith that And the experience of life that we enjoy, that we can know the peace of God is through this faith. Whose whose accomplishments are we trusting in? In which way are we entering into this? In which way are we now living in it? Living by faith. It's It's not the strength of the faith that's most important. Although I would encourage you to continue to grow in your faith. But the strongest faith and the weakest of objects is still weak faith. 
You can believe all the lies you want, and no matter how strongly you believe them, they will still be lies, and they will still leave you empty-handed. But even a weak faith in the true one will bring you life. And as you trust him, as you grow in that faith and walk with him, and that's why it's so important to study these stories that go all the way back, that show us that God's always been working. He has always been trustworthy. I so appreciate Pastor Bob last week just abiding faithfulness. God has always been faithful. We can trust him. And it's in walking in faith with him that we know the greatest sense of peace, the greatest amount and recognition of his blessings, of, of grace and all of his goodness. But further, our efforts are even defined by our faith. You can do the most noble things for all the wrong reasons and still be sinning. Romans 14, 23, Paul is answering questions and he is answering this, this challenge about eating food and, 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 and walking through this struggle that the, the Christians are having. And, and he's basically saying that, that it's not the issue of the eating of the food, but, but whoever doubts is condemned. So we would encourage no one to sin against their conscience, to do something that their conscience doesn't allow. But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. And here's the principle. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you got up this morning and came to church because you think it's what makes you acceptable to God and you've become holy because now you've just worked and, and, and provided God some reason to count you, but not because you trust in God, not motivated by faith, then this most noble act is still sin. Now, I'm not trying to run anybody off. Don't hear me doing that. That's not my intent. But are we living by faith? Is faith the motive for why we do what we do? Or are we going to stand before God and say, God, look at what I've done for you. Here's all my good works. Or are we going to stand before him and say, Lord, I just trust you. Now we're going to see, and we've already begun to be introduced, that that faith will lead to works. Don't misunderstand me. But is faith moving it? Is faith leading the good work? All right, that's why it matters. Let's pray.